I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. You're listening to our podcast edition of the program. I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Sarab Madad to our broadcast today. She is Senior Director of Special Pathogens at the New York City Health System. Doctor, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. And I should add, you're also a task force member on the Federation of American Scientists in responding to COVID-19. Are you in the camp that um, the vaccines, even if they are efficacious, even if they are effective, which is a different standard in the immunology and vaccinology community, um, that if we don't wear masks, and if we don't socially distance from each other, then the advent of a vaccine uh, may or may not make a difference. Well, you know, I think that these are separate layers, if you will. So having a vaccine available is absolutely, you know, the golden standard. That's exactly what we want to achieve. And then ensuring that we're also wearing, you know, a mask is a separate layer. Um, And so we call these layers, you know, almost, you know, it's an additive type of approach. And so um, I think it's it's important for uh, people to to understand that once a vaccine is made available, does this mean that we're going to you know take off our mask and it's going to go back to the pre-pandemic days? I don't think that is going to be the case. Um, and the big question is, well, when is that going to happen? And we still don't know that yet because we need to look at the surveillance. We need to look at the data and it depends on multiple different factors. Once a vaccine is made available, I mean, this is going to be, um, you know, one of the biggest vaccination uh, programs in the history of the world, because you want to vaccinate as many people as possible and have good coverage. And ultimately what we're trying to achieve is having herd immunity through vaccination. When we achieve that is something, obviously, is, is something that we're going to follow very closely. But even with that, you know, I think that we're going to um, wear a mask, you know, coupled with once a vaccine is, is made available. Um, and we'll see how, how things progress. I think that a vaccine, obviously, is one layer. We want to have therapeutics also made available, you know, other types of tools in our toolbox that we can expand. As you were involved on the ground in responding to the new stages of resurgence in New York City, um, you, there seems to have been a consensus around this 3% infection rate. And once the positivity you know, or infection rate being at 3%, that uh, that would ground certain activities. Uh, what is that based on? So, you know, it's, it's a, an excellent question. And first, you know, every state and really even nationally and even universally, we have a set of benchmarks. And and these benchmarks are something that's been agreed upon through a number of different public health experts and healthcare system experts. And some of these benchmarks uh, include, for example, having a percent positivity rate below 5%. This is something that the World Health Organization provided that a number of states and a number of countries have adapted. Along with that, we have a number of other benchmarks. And again, these are all agreed upon metrics uh, through uh, collaboration of many different experts. So you have, you know, the percent positivity rate, but you also want to see, you know, less than four daily new cases per 100,000 population. You also want to see, you know, 150 new tests per 100,000 population. So these are different types of benchmarks. And so based on these benchmarks, you have what you call almost, you know, a microcluster strategy, as New York State Department of Health calls it. Um, and, And based on this strategy, you're able to see based on hyperlocal surveillance where a community 
is at. And then if you need to pull back, then you, you're able to do so. And this is where some of these interventions come into play. For example, you know, having schools go online or remote versus in-person, closing down non-essential businesses, things like that. And that's just the type of response that we want to have because we don't want to have blanket shelter in place for the entire city or for the entire state. We know, you know, shelter in place or lockdowns are kind of last resort epidemic, you know, epidemic control measures. And so if we can, you know, have it down to the local level where cases are actually rising, that's that's what we want to achieve. Is there a way, doctor, to assess how the cluster approach uh, has fared so far in trying to mitigate the spread in clusters that uh, since the height of the pandemic uh, have emerged in various zip codes? Certainly. You know, I think that the the problem first is the reporting of the data. And some states are doing a great job in reporting this type of data and other states are lacking. So, for example, uh, in New York City, if you go on their website, you know, it's, it's an open page and it's an open book, if you will. So you're able to see the progress that's being made from the contact tracing standpoint, along with where these clusters are happening down to the zip code. And this is a type of information that is really helpful, not just for public health and healthcare delivery officials, but also for the general public to make better informed decisions. So you're able to see where these hotspots are happening by zip code and, 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 and think, you know, maybe I'm not going to go grocery shopping there because, you know, the prevalence of disease is quite high. Uh, so the chances of me interacting with somebody that has COVID-19, again, increases. Um, and so there's a, a patchwork in terms of what is being made available across the state. But I can speak to New York City and New York State, and again, that's an open book. You can see the data there, um, and these strategies do work um, because uh, you know you have really great community engagement at the local level. Um, and so, I think these are the types of strategies that need to really happen universally. The one thing that I'll also mention that unfortunately I don't think it's enough attention is we talk a lot about you know the mantra of testing, isolation, you know, um, and and quarantine. Um, And we want to also mention, obviously, the very important element of of tracing. And we know if you're looking at the data, the entire United States is a hotspot. And what this also means is that all the contact tracing programs along, you know, in in these states um, have been overwhelmed. So if you actually just go to a website called covidexitstrategy.org and you look at the contact tracing uh, column, you're seeing almost all the states are saying extremely difficult or uh, unlikely to be able to do rigorous contact tracing. That is a very worrisome sign because if you're not able to trace where, you know, these individuals um, are, then you're going to have an ongoing expanding epidemic. And here in the United States, what we like to see is at least 30 contact traces per 100,000. And unfortunately, you know, where we're currently at is probably close to a little over 50,000 contact tracers in the entire United States. And we don't even know if that number, you know, is is true because it's so hard to actually find out how many we truly are, truly have. So that's completely an underestimate. Uh, We need so much more than that. So if we really want to contain this outbreak, we need to completely change the way that we are responding to COVID-19. So first, you know, I highly believe that we need to meet people where they're at. Um, And that's, you know, a public health mantra. And so contact tracing is one element, but we need to increase testing at uh, you know, um, at home. So people are able to test themselves. Um, contact tracing certainly is something that we want to happen, but the reporting element is something that is often talked about of, well, if people are doing it at home, how are we going to report it? 
I think, you know, these modern day epidemics need modern day upgrades. And I think contact tracing can happen in parallel, but we also need to provide testing um, at the home so people are able to see if they're isolated, see if they can um, isolate, quarantine if they're exposed, and, and make sure that we're implementing these types of uh, a measure. So I think it's really, really important. The last thing that I'll mention is the need for wraparound services. And this is something that New York City is heavily doing. And when we talk about wraparound services, many people don't have the luxury of isolating or quarantining at home. You, we want to have an option like, uh, you know, isolation quarantine hotels. I've been part of um, the program here in New York City of, of helping establish these, uh, you know, these alternate uh, care settings, if you will. Myself, you know, I got COVID-19. I live in a home where I could have uh, physically distanced myself, but unfortunately, everybody in my home came down with COVID-19, which speaks to it's very difficult to quarantine at home, to isolate at home if you're infected or if you're exposed. So having this option, I think, is really, really important. And again, the more, you know, um, the more items that we can add in to uh, preventing the spread of COVID-19, the more we can sweeten the deal, if you will, the faster we can get out of this pandemic. Because you mentioned it, doctor, I want to ask you with your personal experience uh, with COVID, what, how did that inform you about the nature of this virus and um, how you and your family responded? And I hope you're, you're not experiencing um, some of those extended side effects that have been reported in, in many, many people. No, th- thank you for your concern. So certainly, I think in terms of long COVID, you know, the only thing that I'm I've been experiencing. It's just, you know, oftentimes this um, on and off headache that I never had before it could be t- attributed to, you know, my COVID-19 infection that I had previously, or it could just be something, uh, you know, separate. Um, but for, for us, you know, it's very hard to tell where, you know, I myself, you know, picked up the virus and then unfortunately, you know, spread it uh, among uh, family members. Um, and so it's certainly, I think early on when we were infected, it was a scary time because we were learning a lot about this virus uh, and certainly seeing in New York City, so many people become hospitalized. You're seeing the death rate skyrocket. Um, so it definitely was, uh, you know, something that we're very um, worried about. But luckily, we all made it through. We all had mild cases, not to say that, again, you know, we're not at higher risk for other medical conditions in the, you know, in the future, looking at the sequelae associated with COVID-19. But I think this speaks to, and for me, based on my personal experience, this is what highlighted the dire need for wraparound services. And and as I mentioned, you know, I live in a home where I could have physically distanced, and and I did, but everybody came down with COVID-19. And there are articles that show you that an individual that has COVID-19 in the household, you know, you're about 10 times more uh, or higher um, likely to infect other household members. And so the more we can add these options, and this is not just about these isolation or quarantine hotels that, you know, I probably, uh, you know, would have stayed at um, had it been made available during that time. But if you're also looking at the data, people have to go out to get pharmaceutical medication. They have to get meals. If you look at, you know, milk carton, if you open up a milk carton, you're supposed to use it within seven days or else, you know, it, it expires or, or spoils. And that's less than the, the, the time frame that you need to isolate, which is 10 days. So we need to take these things into consideration. If we're able to provide these services, we're able to ensure that these people that are isolating and quarantine are actually staying put and not going out in the community and starting new chains of transmission. So want to really make sure that we, we're looking at this from a holistic lens and then providing that funding and that financial support that needs to go along with it. Because right now in the contact tracing programs, majority of that funding is going to hiring the contact tracers. And, and obviously that's extremely important. We also need to provide another bucket of funding to provide these wraparound services uh, for the nation. With respect to the 
uh, mystery of, of where you may contract COVID, uh, certainly any kind of social settings with other human beings make you vulnerable, whether it's just a handful of people or a few dozen people, um, certainly any kind of crowd, even if you are distanced, even if you are mask wearing, presents some, some risk. Um, but when I hear that people aren't understanding where they're being infected, it, it makes me consider this question, is it, is it something we can be fairly certain that it is the human to human transmission um, as opposed to um, what had been described as a major risk or speculated about, which was uh, contact um, with um, any kind of um, articles of clothing or uh, substances that, that may have been contaminated. Um, the, the restaurant industry um, and restaurants seem to be a, a spreader um, based on the current reporting more than school settings. Um, so the, the question is, um, do we understand better now what kind of setting it's coming from, whether it, it really has to involve other people or, um, or if you could isolate and theoretically still get it, even if you're isolating. So, you know, I think when we talk about uh, what increases your chances of getting infected with COVID-19, we know a lot more about this virus than we did, you know, you know, 10 months ago. And so there are factors, for example, if they overlap, this increases your chances of getting infected. So we know that uh, close contact. So even though we say six feet, that's not a magic number. Um, we know that if you're even closer to an individual, you know, that's a risk factor right there. So close, you know, having a close contact, you know, confined spaces, you know, and this speaks to ventilation. So even if you're in a room and you're let's just say 10 or 12 feet away, if you're in a confined space with poor ventilation, then, you know, those uh, droplets, for example, uh, you, you, you uh, fill up the room, for example, in layman's term, um, much faster. Um, and so you have a higher likelihood of getting infected if you're in that confined space, again, for a long period of time. Um, and then crowded space uh, or, or just being around crowds. And so, you know, when we see the overlap of some of these factors, you, you see that you have an increased risk of infection of COVID-19. Um, I think to your point, are we seeing cases based on, you know, fomite transmission, transmission or, you know, the contact transmission versus the droplet or aerosol transmission? It's hard to, to tell because when you're doing contact tracing and you're trying to figure out where, you know, an individual may have become infected from, if you're around somebody that has COVID-19, you know, trying to see whether you were infected through inhaling a droplet or aerosol versus being coming in contact with, let's just say, a table that may have been infected and then touching your mucous membranes, it's hard to get that nitty gritty, um, as, as you can imagine, in that particular scenario. Um, but it obviously, it's still important to see exactly the mode of transmission. The World Health Organization, the CDC, and other public health entities have, you know, put on their website that certainly uh, contact transmission, you know, through, uh, you know, these indirect means is certainly a potential, but it's not the main driver. In fact, the World Health Organization even states on their website there hasn't been a documented case, um, you know, of you know contact transmission through touching these high touch surfaces. Um, yet, that's not to say that it hasn't happened. We just don't have a you know a high likelihood of a documented case yet. So it's important that we continue to follow the preventative measures that public health 
you know, has been talking about because they're giving you these measures based on what we know, uh, along with, um, you know, enhanced um, actions because there's still uh, this ambiguity of, of can you get it through this means. Um, and I think the data does show that you can, uh, but is it the primary primary driver? Um, that doesn't seem to be the case. So it's again, you know, that's why you want to do good hand hygiene. You want to clean high touch surfaces often. And certainly if you are infected with COVID-19, you know, it's really important to provide additional guidance for these individuals, because I think what you're also seeing is, you know, once you get that test result back, by the time you get a call uh, from the contact tracer, hopefully it's relatively soon, but it depends on what state you're in. If you're in a state that's overwhelmed, you might not get that information of, okay, you need to isolate at home. You need to be, you know, in a separate room. Don't share a bathroom, clean um, high touch surfaces. If you're going to touch anything, wear a mask, if you're going to be leaving your room, that information is so important again, because a lot of these cases are stemming from the household environment. Um, and so making sure that people just understand what these measures are, not just prevention, but if you get infected, these are the things that you should do to limit uh, exposure to those that are in your household. Um, here in New York City, one of the innovative, um, uh, you know, programs that they have is these take care packages. So you get a package that has, you know, gloves and masks and a pulse oximeter. It also has um, information and education material and basic infection control. And so if you want to safely isolate in your home or quarantine, if you're exposed, you get, you know, these packages, for example, um, and I think, again, it's a really great model for the rest of the nation. Looking towards the, the winter, do you expect that there will have to be more um, shutdowns of, of particular industries? Um, and, you know, do you think that even if it's largely controlled in New York City uh, and New York State, that the fact that it's uncontrolled in other places makes it um you know, virtually impossible not to have those shutdowns. So, you know, I think first it's it's important to, to understand, and I think it's very clear, we have very porous borders. So something that's happening in Texas can very well reach New York or something happening in Connecticut, which, you know, is a bordering state can very much come to New York. And so this is for the rest of the nation uh, and other states can seed outbreaks in states that are already doing a, a good job. And so this is where it's so important to have a uniform strategy, a national strategy. So that way, if you are, are infected with COVID-19 and you decide, you know what, I want to go out to a bar and get a drink, you know, you shouldn't have to, you shouldn't be able to drive, you know, down the street or two hours and go to a state that has um, open bar, for example, um, and be able to, to interact with other people. So I think that uniformity is really, really important. But I also think that um, you know, we need to have a hyper-local response. And what I mean by that, as, I, as I've mentioned earlier, is, you know, first, you need a good surveillance system. You need to see where these cases are happening. And then you need to implement, you know, these measures in terms of having, uh, you know, non-essential business closures, having schools go online, and then prioritizing those activities that uh, are more meaningful to the economy and to the general public um, than those that are more recreational, right? So again, restaurants and bars and things like that, you can have restaurants do curbside pickup. You don't have to have bars open. I'd rather have schools open than bars open, if you will. So I think we need to prioritize those things. But if we can do it from a hyper-local response, it'll save a lot of people, you know, headache of uh, knowing, you know, okay, it's going to be a blanket, you know, shelter in place. So we really need to get to the nitty gritty uh, if we uh, if we really want to get out of this pandemic um, sooner. The other thing that's really important is community engagement. And then unfortunately, I'm not seeing that enough uh, happening across the nation. You know, if you if you're looking at, you know, some of the information that has come out from the 
uh, presidential election, you know, a number of people were choosing the economy versus having the pandemic under control. And this speaks to the false dichotomy of them thinking that it's more important to have an economy than to be able to, you know, be able to respond to COVID-19 properly when they really go hand in hand. You can't have a, uh, you know, a bolstering economy if people are falling sick. So I think that we need to do a much better job with community engagement. We need to make sure that we are, again, meeting people uh, at where, where they're at um, and instead of, you know, just piling on things uh, to, for people to do. And by community engagement, you really want to make sure that you are involving community organizations, faith-based leaders. Um, you're having an outreach program that is culturally sensitive, um, that meets the diversity of your community, and talking to them and letting them know, you know, what is happening. There is a lot of false information and misinformation out there. It continues to propagate. Tell them the tools that they need to be able to, you know, um, keep themselves safe um, and then provide resources, you know, connect them with healthcare services and things like that. So I think we really need to do a better job with community engagement. And during a cold winter, what is the best way to try to facilitate that? So, you know, I think whether it's, you know, rain or shine, you know, our public health measures have not changed regardless of, you know, what uh, the temperature is outside. We know how to contain, you know, control COVID-19. We know how to mitigate the risks. So I think we just need to do a better job of communicating that. So risk communication is so important. We need to invest more in these infrastructures and we need to, as I mentioned, upgrade our response and we need to have more testing at home. We need to teach people, um, you know, why this is important and how to do it. We, we need to make sure people understand that if you do have COVID-19, again, this is this is what you need to do. So again, people know they have to isolate at home. They may not know that they shouldn't be sharing a bathroom. They may not know that they need to wear a mask in their house, you know, um, if they're infected. As simple as it is, we can't bank on something that you think people may know. So you're hearing so many people say, wear a mask, you're seeing more people wear a mask outdoors and you're seeing people wear a mask indoors. And you know that indoor transmission is the one that's driving the pandemic. And so we really need to make sure that we're just communicating it in layman's terms and providing the resources that's actually needed in this pandemic. And, and as a final question, um, with respect to uh, testing, when do you anticipate at-home testing to be available to people? You know, I think we have certainly made a lot of strides in terms of increasing our testing capability across the United States. And you're seeing that, you know, we're almost hovering, you know, you know, doing more than uh, close to two million tests, you know, per day. But it's certainly nowhere near where we need to be. And I think that if we're able to increase testing at home, that's really the golden standard as well. When that's going to happen, you know, I think there's a lot of um, companies that are trying to work at providing uh, and developing these antigen tests. Um, but we need to do more in that particular field. We need to fund that more and we need to make sure that they have the resources that they need for it to be publicly um, available. We also need to make sure that the FDA is able to, uh, you know, uh, provide the approval uh, for these tests, you know, to be used. We have a lot of regulatory requirements here in the United States that other countries don't have. And this is, you know, it's it's this uh, um, uh, dual sword. It has pros and cons to it. Um, and in a, in a pandemic situation, you need something fast, but you need something reliable. You want to make sure people have these resources at their fingertips, but you have to go through a regulatory process. And so I think all of that really does need to be considered um, as we're discussing all of this. And it is being considered, and there is a pathway, a fast track, as you know, um, but, you know, these are just things that are top of mind right now. Doctor, thank you so much for your insight today. Thanks for having me.